Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 12. A Mismatched Pair I reached down for the shoe and held it up to the homeless man's face. Where's the woman who goes with this? The question seemed to startle him. His roomy eyes grew wide and he huffed a withering breath of night train and stale vomit in my direction. I twisted away from him and scanned the area. To the north, at the intersection with the mission, a cab turned right and pulled away from view. I couldn't see it well enough to tell if Lisa was in the back seat, but I felt a keen nip of disappointment at the thought she would leave without waiting for me to return. To the south, there were no cabs and only a few pedestrians, none of whom looked the least bit like her. I looked back at the pump in my hands, thinking maybe I had been mistaken in assuming it was hers. It was hard to believe that she would get into a cab with only one shoe. I saw the homeless man approach me again in my peripheral vision. A rough hand tugged at my sleeve. What's that? he asked. I rounded on him, ready to vent my frustration with a few choice expletives. But when I turned completely to face him, I saw he was pointing a jittery finger across the street. There, in a narrow alley between two buildings, a pair of figures struggled silently in the shadows. One was unquestionably Lisa. The other was a slight Asian man, not even as tall as her, with his hand around her mouth. He was trying to drag her further into the darkness, but she was fighting him for all she was worth, ramming him into the wall of the building and attempting to spear his insole with the heel of her remaining shoe. I flashed across the street, narrowly avoiding a collision with a motorcyclist on a Harley. With his curse still ringing in my ears, I came skidding up to the pair. Neither was aware of my presence, Lisa's exertions having torqued them around so that both of their backs were facing me. I had no time to think. I simply struck out with the only thing at hand, Lisa's spike-heeled pump. I brought it down hard on the crown of the little man's head. He yelped and involuntarily reached for his scalp. Lisa took the opportunity to twist free and it was only then that I saw her assailant held a knife in his left hand. She had been very brave and very foolish to resist him to the extent that she had. With Lisa gone from his grasp, he leaped up, pirouetted in midair, and landed smoothly in a triangle stance. It didn't take an expert to recognize that he had some flavor of martial arts training, and from the way he now brandished the knife, Snaking it back and forth with his shield hand and near-hypnotic movements, I figured he'd done more than peel apples with it. He grunted and spat a paragraph of Chinese at me. He finished with something heartfelt that sounded like, Sai Guelo, repeating it twice for emphasis. I didn't think it was a compliment. Get the police, I shouted to Lisa. I didn't want her in harm's way, and despite my size advantage, 
I wasn't liking my chances with the guy. He underscored the point by lunging forward to slice up my jacket while I made the mistake of turning to see that Lisa was following instructions. The damage was limited to Sears Roebuck and not August Reardon, but I needed to be much more careful. I threw Lisa's shoe in his face to distract him, drew back, and then reached down to my ankle. I yanked my own knife out of its sheath and came into a stance that approximated his. That froze him. We held the tableau nearly a minute, blood pounding in my ears, chestfuls of air passing through my lungs at a rate approaching hyperventilation. Finally, the ache in my hamstrings overcame my fear of his knife-fighting skills. I said, If you're feeling froggy, little man, then go ahead and jump. I don't know if he understood the words or registered the challenge from my tone, but jump he did. He fainted to my left and then flicked the blade down and to the right, coming in below my elbow for a raper-like stab at my ribs. I was too slow to parry the thrust, managing only to twist enough to have the knife point puncture the flesh on my side, rather than coming hard under the rib cage. I slashed down with my own knife as he pulled back, scoring a long cut across the back of his hand. Lisa's scream behind me told me that she hadn't departed as I'd asked. My side blossomed in fire, and I couldn't stop myself from reaching across with my left hand to staunch the wound. That was the opening he was waiting for. He came at me, grabbing for my shoulder and bringing the knife in a short, vicious arc for the middle of my belly. I rolled my shoulder and leaned to the side, avoiding his grasp and causing him to miss with the knife. He thudded into me, our feet became tangled, and then we both fell over like a toppled supermarket display. I landed on my back with the little man's belt buckle on my face. I lost my grip on my knife and heard his clatter along the asphalt behind us. He squirmed over me, trying to retrieve it, but then Lisa came up to kick it out of reach. That really got him going. He wriggled and scratched and gouged, finally making me so mad that I forgot about trying to reach my own knife and lifted him so I could get my feet planted firmly in his gut. I launched him off me, flinging him into the air like a human cannonball. He bounced off a brick wall and landed with a satisfying whump. I scrambled up, but he was on his feet almost as quickly. He was having no part of the tussle now. He turned and sprinted up the alley. I yelled at Lisa again to get help and ran after him. I went out of pure mule-headedness and regretted it almost immediately. I wasn't sure where he was leading me, and my side radiated pain with each pounding step. We ran through a maze of dumpsters, past a fence transformer, and in and around tall stacks of wooden pallets, my longer strides chewing up the real estate between us. I was almost on him when he broke left into the mouth of an intersecting alley. Idling a few yards down was a van with its rear door open. He shouted something in Chinese, and another small man standing in the cargo section of the van answered. He dove for the van as it began to pull away, landing with his legs dangling over the side like a swimmer on a raft. I took two bounding steps forward and grabbed for those legs. I got hold of the right one, and for the briefest moment, felt the acceleration of the van wrenching him out of the grasp of the man in the cargo area, when my grip slipped from his knee to his foot. 
His shoe came off in my hands. The van screeched away, and I rolled into a pile of soggy fiberglass insulating material that someone had dumped in the alley. There was no question of getting a license plate or even a good description of the van, so I picked myself up, brushed off as much of the pink fiberglass as I could, and retraced my steps to the entrance of the alley on Stewart. There I collected my knife and the Chinese guys and put both in my pocket. I also found Lisa's pump in two pieces, the heel having come off when I clobbered the Chinese guy with it. I was holding both pieces of shoe, along with the Chinese guy's black slipper, when Lisa came running barefoot from across the street, bringing Saul Hodges with her. She took one look at me and wrapped me in a hug. Hodges stood to the side with an amused expression on his face. He nodded at the shoes in my hands. Got anything in a brown Oxford? he asked. Lisa insisted on taking me to an emergency room to have my side looked at. As it turned out, it was nothing very serious. A punctured love handle requiring a tetanus shot and some clever bandaging. The ER doctor also recommended stitches, but I wasn't in the mood to be further traumatized. I decided it wasn't a good idea to let Lisa go home by herself. We caught a cab in front of UCSF Medical Center and directed it across town to a mother's house on Russian Hill. What does Saiguelo mean? I asked her after I had maneuvered my bandaged self into the most pain-free accommodation I could make with the lumpy cab upholstery. Lisa pursed her lips and stared blankly out the window. It's not a pleasant expression. Cleaned up a bit, it means dirty white devil. Hard to be dirty and white at the same time. You know what I mean. Does my being white have anything to do with this? Lisa smiled and reached down to take my hand. I don't see how, August. He may have followed me to the club, but I can't imagine he knew that I was going to see you. Which leads to the obvious question. Why did he try to abduct me? I've no idea. Our conversation was pretty brief. It pretty much boiled down to, come with me or I'll cut your throat. I squeezed her hand and then reached to put my arm around the back of the seat. I brought my head within a few inches of hers and put some gravitas into my voice. You are one courageous girl, but what you did was foolish, both in resisting him and staying around to help me. It's lucky you weren't seriously injured. You're the courageous one. I don't think he ever intended to hurt me. I think his job was to bring me back alive. For what? She looked me square in the eye, smiled ever so slightly, and shook her head. I flopped back into the seat. Yeah, you already told me. You have no idea. Had you ever seen the guy before? No. Did he say anything about where he was taking you? No again. I wonder if your mother would have better answers to those questions. She may, but I've got a feeling this one is going to catch even my mother off guard. Lisa turned out to be right. The dragon lady lived in an ersatz Italian villa made of pink marble that was layered into the hillside near the corner of Greenwich and Leavenworth. She had a great view of Coit Tower to the west and an even better one of the bay to the north. We went through an ornate metal gate covered in ivy, 
then down a short marble walkway to the left wing of the house. Lisa barely had her key to the lock when the door swung open. I wasn't sure which was more scary, to catch the dragon lady with her hair up in curlers or to see the tears that were streaming down her cheeks. Lisa and she exchanged a good two minutes of high-speed Chinese. Then she pulled Lisa by the arm into the house. A moment later, she stepped back outside, closing the door behind her. She dabbed at her eyes with the tissue she took from her housecoat. Thank you for bringing my daughter home safe to me, Mr. Reardon. You're welcome. I wonder if you can tell me, though, why it is she was ever in jeopardy. The dragon lady set her jaw and swallowed. I do not know why, but I will make it a priority to find out. If it affects your investigation, I will tell you. And if it doesn't, I will deal with it myself. Hey, here's a thought. Maybe you could hire a private eye to investigate. Good night, Mr. Reardon. I went back down the path, through the gate, and onto the street. Floodlights at the base of Coit Tower lit it up like a kind of shining beacon. But the wreath of cypress trees encircling its base seemed dark and clutching. I got back into the cab and rode home. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>